this paper explores the potential for Bitcoin to serve as an alternative hedging asset. About five years ago, we asked Charlie Munger, we were sitting right there, what he thought of Bitcoin, and he said, rat poison. Uh, back then, it was about $100 plus dollars per Bitcoin. Today, it's 9000 Is it still rat poison? Well, probably rat poison squared. Yo, 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 and welcome back to another episode of the Nick and Griff Show. Public service announcement. Don't forget to remind your friends and family that one Bitcoin will always be one Bitcoin. Now let's dive in. Today is Tuesday, November 29th. It is 5.27 p.m. And I am coming to you today with another article read. And it's been too long since we've done the last one. But man, so much has happened. Um, And, you know, on Twitter, there's just a million things that are coming in. And you can only catch so many of those things. And one of the pieces that I caught was Bitcoin Archive. And they'd said something about Harvard University calls cryptocurrency or Bitcoin this or that, whatever it was. And I was like, hmm, Harvard said something. What wonder where that comes from. And so I found, you know, kind of scrolled through the thread a little bit um, and or at least the replies and found the actual document and uh, and read the whole thing, did some highlights and everything through there. It's kind of an interesting read. Um, it's funny, you know, Griff and I were talking about this just the other day. And it's it's so wild that some of these institutions, Harvard being one of them, have so many resources at their fingertips, um, have so much capital um, at their expense, and yet they still use the word cryptocurrency. It's not cryptocurrency. It's Bitcoin. And, um, you know, so, so that's kind of an interesting piece here. And, you know, this is, uh, this is also, it focuses on a country level, but I think that there's some similarities that I'll tie in here um, as we get into it to the individual, right? To people like us, the just the normal working class people, there are some, some bridges there that cross over. Um, so let's jump into this sucker here. Let's not waste any more time. Um, this sucker is titled Hedging Sanctions Risk Cryptocurrency in Central Bank Reserves by Matthew Ferranti, Department of Economics, Harvard University. And this was written uh, and published November 17th of 2022. I'm going to read the abstract here. And, uh, and then I'm not going to read the introduction, but I am going to read section two. That is the overview of financial sanctions. Um, and I think that that I think that that piece really sets a good groundwork for some good questions to think about. So reading this abstract here it says central banks may shift their international reserve holdings in order to protect themselves ex ante against the risk of financial sanctions by fiat reserve currency issuers. For example, from 2016 to 2021, countries facing a higher risk of U.S. sanctions increased the gold share of their reserves more than countries facing a lower risk of U.S. sanctions. That makes sense. This paper explores the potential for Bitcoin. Now, this is kind of where it's where it's kind of interesting. Whenever it talks about cryptocurrency a little later on, it talks about Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, so at least at least we're narrowed down from just cryptocurrency. But it says this paper explores the potential for Bitcoin to serve as an alternative hedging asset. I describe a dynamic, ba- uh, I describe a dynamic Bayesian uh, copula model, which I've not done any research into. So if you guys have, let me know. 
to stimulate the joint returns of Bitcoin and other reserve assets under a wide range of plausible sanctions probabilities. Assuming mean variance preferences, a modest risk of sanctions significantly increases optimal gold and Bitcoin allocations. Absolutely. If a central bank cannot acquire sufficient physical gold to hedge its sanctions risk, the optimal Bitcoin share rises further, suggesting that gold and Bitcoin are imperfect substitutes. I conclude that sanctions risk may diminish the appeal of U.S. treasuries, propel broader diversification in central bank reserves, and bolster the long-run fundamental value of both cryptocurrency and gold. Um, so first here, right out, right out of the gates on the abstract here. Um, so he's posing a really interesting piece, right? Sanctions risk, sanctions risk. That is, that is counterparty risk. Um, that is counterparty risk, uh, for a, a country, right? For a nation. Um, they, they mention a lot here once you get into the introduction. Um, and, and I think in some of the other sections in here, they do talk about what is going on, uh, in Ukraine with Russia, um, the sanctions against Russia, through that whole uh, that whole event, um, it actually kind of there were some kind of interesting statistics in there. I think it was three hundred billion dollars of assets frozen um, and, and barred access to uh, by by the United States, the UN, several other countries that it notes against Russia, right? Which which would you would think incentivize Russia to hedge that sanctions risk? So they're posing some interesting, uh, an interesting thought here. Matthew is uh, an interesting thought on sanctions risk and the correlation to that sanctions risk and the allocation to gold, or in this case, he's now posing cryptocurrency, which we all know would be Bitcoin, right? So, uh, like I said, I'm going to skip the introduction here, but I'm going to read a couple of these, um, a couple of these highlights in here. So, this first one says. The ability of fiat reserve issuers to freeze transactions, which constitutes a form of de facto default on the underlying obligations, calls into question fiat reserve currencies' status as safe haven assets. Man, what a statement. Read that again. Just listen to that again. That's, that's something else. Um, okay, so jumping down in here uh, into section two, it is titled Overview of Financial Sanctions. Let's get into this. The history of economic sanctions dates back to the blockades of World War One, following which the League of Nations began employing sanctions in support of foreign policy objectives as an alternative to war. Mulder, 2022, describes the usage of economic sanctions as a coercive tool in the interwar period. Economic sanctions uh, encompass both trade sanctions, tariffs and embargoes, as well as, as well as financial sanctions. In the digital commerce era, financial sanctions have assumed greater prominence because of the degree of centralization of the global financial system in the immediacy with and the immediacy with which electronic banking services can be disabled. Ooh, man. Let's read that again. In the digital commerce era, financial sanctions have assumed greater prominence because of the degree of centralization of the global financial system and the immediacy with which electronic banking services can be disabled. Whew, that's a good statement right there. Zerat, 2022, 
2013 details the expansion of the U.S. Treasury Department's financial sanctions program to assist counterterrorism efforts following the 9-11 attacks. Uh, Huffbauer and Jung updates Huffbauer and describes more recent developments in economic sanctions, including the Iran nuclear uh, agreement and Trump tariffs. In the United States, financial sanctions can be implemented through a legislative or presidential procedure. In the legislative procedure, Congress uh, passes a law specifying sanctions and either the president signs the law or Congress overrides the president's veto. In the presidential procedure, the president issues an executive order declaring a state of emergency concerning, uh, concerning a particular country, region, or topic, which empowers the U.S. Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, that's OFAC, to issue sanctions. All U.S. persons, listen to this, this looks crazy, all U.S. persons must comply, must comply with OFAC sanctions, including all persons and entities within the United States, all U.S. incorporated entities and their foreign branches. That, that, that says, if, if you're a part of the United States, if you are a citizen or an entity that's a part of the United States, you, you must comply with our sanctions. Interesting. If a U.S. person identifies property belonging to an OFAC-sanctioned entity that the U.S. person must block, freeze, the property, prohibiting transfers or dealings of any kind with regard to the property, unless OFAC grants an exception or lifts the specific sanction. Penalties or penalties for failing to comply with OFAC sanctions can be significant. Fines can reach millions of dollars and individuals can face jail time. In April 2022, a researcher received a 63-month sentence along with a $100,000 fine for delivering a presentation, for delivering a presentation about cryptocurrency technology in North Korea. Foreign entities beyond the U.S., uh, beyond the reach of U.S. law enforcement may face secondary sanctions for conducting business with sanctioned entities. Man, I mean, it's just, it's wild, right? Foreign entities beyond the reach of the U.S. laws, in, uh, of U.S. law enforcement may face secondary sanctions for conducting business with sanctioned entities. Man, the control, you know? Other governing bodies implement various procedures for issuing sanctions. The European Union Common uh, Common Foreign and Security Policy Council, that's not that's a mouthful, that's not easy to say, may impose sanctions if all EU members consent to the proposal. The United Nations Security Council may approve sanctions if nine out of 15 members vote in favor. But any permanent member, China, France, uh, the United Kingdom, and United States, may veto the proposal. Perhaps because of the relative ease of implementing sanctions through unilateral executive action, the U.S. has sanctioned far more entities than the U.N. or E.U. As of September 2019, the OFAC list included 8,755 entities. 
compared with the 2136 for the EU and uh, and 1057 for the UN. Hold on, let me let me get this back here. So the OFAC, OFAC is sorry here, I'm learning in real time. So OFAC is the Office of Foreign Assets Control. Okay, so the U- United States Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, as of September 2019, the Office of Foreign Assets Control list included 8,700 entities as compared to 2,100 and 1,000 uh, from the EU and UN, respectively, partly due to concerns about the overuse of sanctions and unintended effects of, on vulnerable groups. The Biden administration announced in October of 2021 that it intended to limit its usage of sanctions. Empirical evidence concerning the effectiveness of sanctions programs is mixed. Uh, these people, 2020 said, compile a compile c- compile a global database and find the sanctions. Find that sanctions are increasingly used over time. The share of financial sanctions is rising. The main objectives of sanctions are increasingly related to democracy or human rights. And the success rate of sanctions has fallen. Wow. Has fallen since 1995, averaging 30% across policy objectives. The success rate of sanctions has fallen since 1995, averaging 30% success rate across policy objectives. Man. 30%, 30% 30%, 30% success rate. Interesting. In a, in a firm level, in a firm level comparison of sanctioned uh, to unsanctioned Russian firms, uh, AHN and Lude, Ludema 2020 show that the 2014 sanctions caused significant losses in operating revenue, asset values, and employees, but the Russian government shielded some strategic firms from the full effect of the Western sanctions. Several central banks currently face or have faced U.S. sanctions. As of July 2022, the central banks of Russia, Iran, Syria, North Korea, and Venezuela are under U.S. sanctions. Additionally, after the 2021 uh, Taliban takeover, the Biden administration froze the New York Fed account belonging to the central bank of Afghanistan ultimately expropriating the funds to divide divide them equally between a trust for the people of Afghanistan and victims of of the 9-11 attacks. Previously, the U.S. froze the reserves of Iraq following its 1990 invasion of Kuwait, which President Bush subsequently expropriated in 2003, and temporarily suspended Iraq's cash withdrawals in 2015 over concerns that cash was being transported to terrorist terrorist groups and and sanctioned Iranian banks. In 2008 and 2020, the U.S. threatened to freeze Iraq's reserves if Iraq expelled U.S. troops from the country. The countries described above face sanctions for a variety of reasons, including launching external wars, sponsoring terrorism, developing nuclear weapons, repressing protests, refusing to accept the outcome of elections, and seizing power from a previous government. 
Therefore, a central bank cannot preclude the possibility of facing U.S. sanctions if the country in question simply avoids particular types of activity. Moreover, there is no expiration date to the U.S. financial sanctions. Some sanctions against Iran have been in place since 1979. So I think the interesting uh, parallel to draw here between the sanctions risk that we're talking about on a, on a country level, right, on a national level, and the individual is counterparty risk, right? We all have heard about FTX and we all uh, have seen uh, an ungodly amount of tweets about what's going on with FTX. Um, it is interesting. It's interesting to see what is happening, how it's playing out. Man, I'll tell you what, the more that we see about what's going on with FTX, what was going on behind the scenes, the more interesting that it gets. Uh, but man, that is sanctions risk. That is counterparty risk. What happens if, I'm sorry, let's, let's back up a little bit. FTX is not sanctions risk, right? They're not, they're not sanctioning you. They're not saying, oh, these people did this thing, so we're not going to allow them access to their financial assets. Um, sanctions risk, I think, could fall under the large umbrella of counterparty risk. Counterparty risk being that you are trusting a third party um, to maintain control and, uh, I guess, security over the assets that you are supposed to own. Um, which if a third party is holding your assets for you, do you own them? I don't know. That's a question you have to answer yourself, right? But my thought here in the parallel that I'm kind of drawing between the sanctions risk uh, for a country and the counterparty risk that we as individuals um, run into every single day is, is exactly that, right? It's, it's counterparty risk and sanction risk. These are one in the same. Um, it's, it's a matter of it's a matter of who is who is deciding what is right and wrong. You know, if let's say that Russia was the good guys, maybe Russia was the good guys. And because we determine the outcome, because we determine uh, because of our financial supremacy uh, as the as the United States, because of our financial supremacy, owning and, and controlling the world reserve currency, the dollar. Because we get to write the history books right now, as it is, as it stands right now, we decide who is right and wrong. What do you think Great Britain thought prior to 1776? Whenever we write the Declaration of Independence and say, we ain't doing this. We are America and we're going to do our own thing here. We're going to live by a different set of standards and we're going to have freedom here. Were we wrong? We were the bad guys. To Great Britain, we were the bad guys. Makes makes me think, you know, like what? Uh, who who are the bad guys? You know, who who should have control over who is right and who is wrong? Who should have control over the money that people use to communicate what their wants and their needs are? How, how are we going to find? How is a market? How is any market going to find equilibrium if? The money is artificially manipulated. If money is artificially manipulated, does that impact what the markets find as equilibrium? I would argue that, yes, it does. It absolutely impacts that. I thought it was an interesting read. Sanctions risk, counterparty risk. How can we combat these things? 
how can how can countries combat these things? I'll kind of paraphrase. You know, the rest of the article really goes on to show that um, countries that are are under higher risk of being sanctioned by the United States, the UN, um, the EU, whoever it is, countries that are under higher risk of being sanctioned hold more gold. And what Matthew Ferrari, Ferrari, whatever his last name was, what he was arguing here is that as we move forward, it seems to make sense that people are going to start, I say people, countries are going to start looking to um, alternative hedging assets that are more efficient, that are geared toward our global uh, economy in an efficient manner. Man, I, I would love to hold some gold. Okay. How are we gonna how are we gonna move this around? How are we going to store this? Do we have to pay to store this? How how are we going to keep this secure? Um, what happens if I need to use this monetary value? Um, Bitcoin is is ultimately the answer here. Um, if you're not sure why, go dive down the rabbit hole. Go listen to freaking one of the other 51 episodes that we got out here on the podcast. Uh, but uh, I will I will put the link in the description here for this exact document um, from Harvard. I thought it was kind of an interesting read. You know, I think that again, kind of what I said in the beginning is, you know, some of these some of these entities that have so much resources uh, in their access that are still saying cryptocurrency that are still just they they just haven't dove down the rabbit hole. Um, it, it's kind of weird to me, you know, so like you, you will see some of that language in there, right? Some of that cryptocurrency language. Um, and he does get into some of the really technical stuff on the types of research that they did and uh, some of the statistical analysis they did that, man, was a little bit over my head. Um, but it's a pretty interesting little read. Uh, I'll just read you a couple of the highlights because there was some interesting stuff in there that, you know, I thought was I thought was interesting, but maybe isn't quite worth reading the entire uh, the entire cryptocurrency section here. He did actually talk about proof of work versus proof of stake, which is interesting. So here, I'm just going to read the highlights here. So if, if you're missing context, just go read the whole thing. Under a proof of work system, the ability to censor transactions on the blockchain requires achieving majority hash power, meaning that the censor must control at least 51% of the computing power employed by all miners. Man, I, I got to think, man, if somebody if somebody has done enough research to understand that, how, how do they not understand some of these other things that they, they just completely miss on in here? Which, again, I'm, I'm not really getting into the into the details and weeds of this deal. But furthermore, the structure of the Bitcoin network incentivizes Bitcoin owners to oppose any individual's acquisition of majority hash power by purchasing or producing their own mining chips because majority hash power also enables a double spending attack that results in the duplication of Bitcoin, which would likely destroy confidence in the cryptocurrency. Absolutely. Rival proof of work currencies tend to face difficulty attracting miners since prospective miners could mine Bitcoin and other established currencies more profitably. Absolutely. The distribution of Bitcoin mining is well diversified and mobile across countries, as illustrated in Figure 5, complicating efforts by an individual country to censor the blockchain by regulating Bitcoin mining. Absolutely. Although network effects will likely support the value of Ether in the short term, 
Staking Ether does not require a meaningful real-world expenditure of resources. So Ethereum may be more likely to face serious competition from alternative networks in the long run than Bitcoin. This is a really interesting little piece here um, that he's talking about. Just um, and just the network effect of money, right? We're talking about money. Uh, what is money? Million, million different definitions. We can talk about that another time. But the network effect um, is huge, right? Um, and we actually just talked about this on episode 51. So go check that out. According to the International in- Energy Agency and the Cambridge Center for Alternative Finance, Bitcoin mining alone consumes approximately half of a percentage of world energy production as of July 2022. Um, I thought this was funny here. This next sentence says, a central bank that purchases significant quantities of Bitcoin will promote additional Bitcoin mining by increasing the price of Bitcoin, resulting in additional environmental harm. All right. It's like, okay. All right, guys, we get it. Reaching the opposite conclusion of whatever this guy's name is, 2019, I argue that Bitcoin meets the minimum requirements to be considered a store of value. Interesting stuff. Um, I'm not going to ramble on anymore here. Go check out the article. I put the link in the description. Go check it out. Um, Give it a read. Let me know what you guys think. Um, This was another article read here. Uh, You guys like the article reads, huh? If you like them, uh, let us know because we'll do more of them. I'm excited to be jumping on here this Saturday with my boy Griff again. And uh, we'll see you next time. Peace.